and everybody is acting like Chicken Little and saying the sky is falling. Um, that is almost always the best time to buy stocks. I, I think the best quote in the history of all quotes related to the stock market is something said by Sir John Templeton. And the quote is that bull markets are born on pessimism, uh, mature on skepticism, uh, or age on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. What's up, HCI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing today? You know, Aaron, I'm I'm doing great. I'm I'm doing great. Stock market's off to a really hot start. As bad as 2022 was, 2023 is shaping up to be uh, just as good on the good side. So, uh, really, really excited about that. Really excited about what stocks are doing. Really excited about what's to come next over the following 12 months. So, um, yeah, all in all, I, I'd say I'm riding high in cloud nine right now. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get hypergrowth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Okay, Luke, we have to kick things off this week again with the macro because frankly, mm -hmm. I got to say, congrats on the macro call so far. You are basically the one with the one of the only people out there shouting for a new bull market breakout in stocks two months ago. Everyone else was playing Chicken Little and saying that the sky is falling. Yet, here we are. And it looks like stocks are indeed rushing into a new bull market. The S&P 500 is already up 5% year to date. The NASDAQ is up almost 10% already. And we're still in January. So, coming from the guy who saw this rally coming, does it last? And if it does... What gives you confidence in saying that it will last? Um, well, Aaron, let, I'd like to start to answer your question by saying when everybody is acting like Chicken Little and saying the sky is falling, um, that is almost always the best time to buy stocks. I, I think the best quote in the history of all quotes related to the stock market is something said by Sir John Templeton. And the quote is that bull markets are born on pessimism, uh, mature on skepticism, uh, or age on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. And that, that's exactly how bull markets work. Um, and the stock market is, is just a cycle. And it cycles between boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust. And it almost is opposite. Uh, the extremes are opposite to, to sentiment. That when sentiment is completely washed out, when everybody's pessimistic, when everybody says the sky is falling, that's when bull markets are born. Uh, 
And then everybody's like, oh, it's a bear market rally. You know, it's not going to last. It's a head fake. That's when bull markets grow and they get really powerful. And then people just say, okay, you know what? I believe in it. I think this is good. You know what? I'm still cautious, though. That's when bull markets really start to come into their own and start to top out. And then when people, everyone's like, all right, you know what? Bear market's never going to happen again. We're going to the moon. We're going to the stratosphere. That's when everything starts to collapse and come crashing down. So bull markets are born on pessimism and they die on euphoria. We had absolute pessimism in the back half of 2022. Um, we've had big pessimism even here in January 2023 as stocks are rallying. So it's no surprise to me that a bull market is being born on the back of this pessimism. We've been – one thing I pointed out is that stocks were essentially flat in the second half of 2022, that people weren't all that pessimistic in the first half of 2022, but that's when stocks actually crashed. That's when the NASDAQ dropped 30%. That's when the S&P dropped 20%. They did that. All the damage was done in the first half of 2022. From June to December, we went nowhere. We were flat, yet that's when all the pessimism was coming in. Stocks were basing, gaining some momentum, and now they're breaking out to the upside. So again, it's no shock to me, given the sentiment backdrop, that we are entering a new bull market. Yes, I do believe it will last. What gives me confidence there? Uh, everything. That, that's the short answer, Aaron. Literally everything gives me confidence that this is the start of a new bull market, and the rally we've seen in stocks year to date well last over the next six to 12 months and likely even further into a multi-year secular bull market. So first up, you have the fundamentals, okay? Inflation is crashing and the economy is remaining resilient. This is a unique combination that sets the stage for soft economic landing. The Fed's going to be able to ease on their rate hiking campaign. Now, again, we've said they're not going to cut, but they're going to pause. They're going to slow down rate hikes. They're going to pause on rate hikes. Inflation is going to keep coming down. The economy is going to restabilize. Boom, you have a soft landing, and that's the basis for a new economic re-expansion in the back half of 23 and going into 2024. So that's the fundamental factors that I really like. I think that is really supportive of a stock market rally. Two, the valuation factors. The S&P 500 dropped to about 17 times, below 17 times, around 16 and a half times forward earnings at its trial in um, October. That is a pretty low valuation for the stock market. Yes, it's above where other bear markets bottom, but the 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.5%. So when you look at the spread between earnings yields and Treasury yields, what we have today is a pretty historically discounted market relative to when other bear markets bottom. So valuations are very attractive and have room for upside, not to mention every time inflation crashes, valuation multiples expand. So I think you're going to get very strong multiple expansion in 2023 as well. So that's the valuation uh, upside that I'm seeing. The earnings upside, because the economy is resilient, is proving resilient to rate hikes, you are now getting earnings coming in better than expected. 10% of S&P 500 companies have already reported earnings, and average EPS beats about 4%. That's a very solid beat. Everybody's beating earnings because everybody got really pessimistic about earnings in 2023, and yet they're proving to be not that bad. Tech companies are, are bringing in costs. They're, they're, they're cutting jobs. It's allowing profit margins to re-expand. Consumers are still spending, so revenues are good. Inflation's coming down, so input costs are coming down. That's also allowing margins to re-expand. So you're seeing some really good signs out there that earnings are not going to be catastrophic in 2023 as bears were expecting. And then fourth, you know, is all the tech or are all the technical indicators that we're seeing. We got a golden cross signal. The S&P 500's 50-day moving average crossed above its 150-day moving average for the first time in this 
pair cycle. Historically speaking, whenever that happens, 50-day cross is meaningfully above the 150-day after being below it for a long time. That's a very, very, very powerful and predictive golden cross signal that the stock market's about to end the bear market and go into new bull market. So you had that one. You had all the thrust signals we talked about last week, break momentum indicator, Whaley breadth thrust, triple 70 thrust. All those were fired. You have, you know, there's there's a couple of folks that they're calling the the trifecta, which is, okay, you had a really bad year in 2022, but then you had the Santa Claus rally, which is the last five trading days of 2022 into the first two days of this year. You had a great first five days of 2023, and it looks like we're going to have a great January. Every time that combination has happened, so you had a bad year and then the trifecta, positive Santa Claus, positive first five, positive January, then the stock market tends to soar by about 30% that year. So you got that trifecta going on. You have the fact that we broke above the downtrend resistance line. We broke up the 200-day moving average. There's just so many technical signals that are firing. So when you put it all together, Aaron, the short answer to your question is, why am I confident? Everything is telling me to be confident. Well, it lasts. Yes, because everything is saying it will last. So either what we're seeing right now is the greatest freaking head fake of all time in stock market history, or this is the start of a new bull market. And I say that somewhat sarcastically, but of course there is, you know, the risk that this is the first time ever that all these things, all the data is wrong because black swans can emerge. And when black swans emerge, it doesn't matter what your data dashboard says. Black swans knock everything off the table. So we have to still monitor and be cautious of a black swan because we're in an environment where a black swan could emerge. But in the absence of a black swan emerging, stocks should soar in 2023. And that's why we are positioning ourselves in a very bullish manner for the next 12 months. And importantly, what we're doing is we're not going out just buying any stocks, and we're definitely not going on buying the Dow. The NASDAQ has led in January. Growth stocks have led in January. Small caps have led in January. I think something like five Russell 1000 stocks are already up more than 50%. And guess what? A lot of the stocks we talked about on here are some of them. Opendoor, Carvana, Affirm. That's three of the five that have already rallied more than 50% year to date. We're, again, January 24th here. So we're going into those stocks. What got crushed in 2022 when the rubber band gets stretched out super far is what snaps back the fastest in 2023. So that's where we're positioning ourselves. That's the macro outlook we have. We're very excited and very bullish on those stocks. Uh, will they reclaim their highs from the 2020 cycle? It's going to take many years to do that. Some of them will, some of them won't, but they're not going to do it in 2023. But the fact of the matter is if you've been dollar cost averaging down and you got really aggressive over the past two months as these things were bottoming, past three, four, five months as things are bottoming, then you know these things rally 50, 60, 70, 80, 100%, 200%, 300% in the next 12 months, and you're going to make a nice profit for yourself. So that's where we are. That's our macro outlook. We're very bullish, very excited, but we think Dow's going to lag. We think large caps are going to lag. We think that safety bets are going to lag, consumer staples, utilities. And we think that risk on stuff is going to really lead. So we think growth, tech, small cap, that's where you want to be for 2023. So in a nutshell, Aaron, very bullish, very excited, and especially enthusiastic about growth bets right now. All right. Um, so you talked about the strength of the earnings season so far, and that's actually a nice segue for my next topic for you. Uh, Netflix earnings. They were mm -hmm. great. The stock has come roaring back to life. I know you bought the stock on the dip in one of your portfolios a few months back. Again, congrats on that. Nice trade there. So two questions. Should we stick with the Netflix rally? 
And what do those strong Netflix numbers mean for the other streaming stocks like Roku, Disney, or even Fubo TV? Right. Yeah. So Netflix's quarter was awesome. I mean, they added about seven and a half, seven point six million subscribers in the quarter. They're only supposed to uh, add about four and a half. So that's a that's a massive beat. That seven to eight million uh, net ads number is is one of its strongest numbers uh, since the pandemic. So they're kind of reaccelerating their user growth trajectory, and that's what really matters here, right? With Netflix, a lot of people talk about the big EPS miss. They did miss massively on EPS. That was because of a one time charge, and at the totally irrelevant. The fact of the matter is they smashed subscriber growth, they smashed revenue, and they smashed operating margins, and they guided pretty strongly for next quarter too. The ad business is going really well. It, where it's launched, it's scaling really nicely. And the most important part to me is that it's not cannibalizing the current business. They said the overwhelming majority of signups for the ad business are from new people. It's not people quitting the paid and going into the ad. It's people that were not even in the Netflix ecosystem now coming into the Netflix ecosystem. So things are shaping up really nicely over at Netflix. And I think that the, again, chicken little sky is falling. Don't listen to that crap. When a comp a Netflix is a fantastic company. When people come out and say Netflix is dead, you buy Netflix because that is such an idiotic thing to say. Netflix is not dead. We all still have it. We're all still watching it. They still have great shows and they're launching new services that probably will add a ton of revenue to the business over the next three to five years. So I think the company is a fantastic position to grow by 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15% per year on the top line for the next five plus years. I think profit margins can expand with scale and with the ad business coming in because that's really high margin, 80% gross margin revenue. And so I think that this is a company that has 10, 15% revenue growth, some margin expansion. I think it's a 15, 16, 17, 18% EPS grower. The multiple is still pretty attractive. I think the stock can still go higher. So I like Netflix here. I think Netflix is doing a really good job of reinventing itself, repositioning itself, and the stock's cheap. So I, I like that setup. I like Netflix stock. What does it mean for Roku? What does it mean for um, you know some of the other streamers out there? Uh, I think it's all good news. The fact of the matter is streaming TV is holistically eating linear TV. There is no reason to have cable anymore. Anybody that's paying for cable, you need, if you know somebody paying for cable, you yourself paying for cable, either slap yourself in the face or go and slap your buddy in the face because they should not be paying for cable. Nobody should be paying for cable TV these days. It's, it's not smart. I pay for YouTube TV. I get, you know, 60 bucks. I get all the channels I want, everything on demand, cloud DVR, I get multiple screens. I can watch it on my phone. I'll be in the drive through in and out. I'll be watching the Lakers game on my phone. I mean, YouTube TV is awesome. You know, Sling has it. Fubo TV is one of those options. Mm -hmm. Those are just a significantly, a far superior option to watching TV channels than, you know, through cable and routers. I don't like that. I don't like that. So I think that's going to go extinct. I think there's still a lot of people hanging on to cable TV. That number is going to go from 50% to 40% to 30% to 20%. By the time, I think probably around 2030, 2035, nobody will have cable TV. It'll be a thing of the past, like, uh, like a radio. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of market share to be gained, a lot of market to grow between now and then for a company like Fubo TV, for a company like YouTube TV under the Google brand, uh, Alphabet brand, for a company like Roku. And so I think that what Netflix is showing us is that streaming is not dead. There's still a lot of growth one way left, not just domestically, but also internationally. You know, the streaming TV 
Uh, penetration rates internationally are much lower than they are domestically. I don't think that's going to last. Again, I think cable TV is going to become a relic of the past, not just in the U.S., but across Europe, across Asia, across everywhere. So I think there's a lot of growth to be had in the streaming industry. Streaming stocks are really cheap, really, 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 really cheap. And not to mention, when all this shift in viewership happens, ad dollars chase eyeballs. So if all these eyeballs go from cable TV to streaming TV, then all those ad dollars that are spent on cable TV, and there are billions upon billions of dollars spent on cable TV, are going to shift to streaming TV. So you're going to get the double tailwind of user growth and an ad revenue shift growth. That's really going to benefit Netflix now because they have the ad version. That's going to really benefit Roku. I think Roku is still the cable box streaming TV. I love that company. Love the stock here. It's breaking out a little bit. I think there's a lot of runway there. And so I'm looking for companies that are positioned strategically to take advantage of that ad dollar shift as well as the user engagement shift. So I'm really positive on streaming stocks here. Talking about 2023 macro outlook, get really you know aggressive with the risk on growth bets. I think streaming is a good place to hang out right now for sure. Okay. Um, sticking in the genre of tech and earnings, um, want to switch gears a little bit, but there have been a lot of tech layoff announcements ahead of this earnings season. Pretty much everyone reads these announcements as bad news for tech firms. But right. I read your research note yesterday, and you actually came at things from a completely different angle, which made honestly a ton of sense. Uh, can you sort of explain how you're interpreting all of these layoffs with respect to stock prices? Yeah, so uh, first and foremost, um, layoffs are always tough and no one wants to go through them. And it's very sad for the company and, and for the people being fired and for the people that, that weren't fired. They got to say, had to say goodbye to uh, people they worked with, people they knew, some of them friends, colleagues. So um, it's never a good situation. But the fact that it's never a good situation is also why, in my opinion, it is one of the most contrarian bullish indicators for a company. That if a company, we've talked about this before, the last domino to fall in a series of struggles for a company is layoffs, is, is, is the employees. That I will cut my marketing costs. I will cut my rent expenses. I will reduce the amount of locations I have open. I will um, cut my IT spending. I'll, I'll cut everything before I cut employees. So if you're now cutting employees, it means that you know, you're know you kind of at the, the nadir of your struggles. It's bad. And normally when it's that bad and you're in a good company, things only get better. And so from my perspective, I think that the layoffs are a contrarian bullish indicator for tech companies, that this is kind of the final straw to break, that they are now right-sizing their operations after a prolific streak of overhiring during the pandemic. They are now realizing that the pandemic era growth is not going to persist forever. Costs are going to get removed from the system. And most importantly for the stock prices, profit margins are going to expand. Tech stock prices, the NASDAQ, has completely followed NASDAQ profit margins. When tech profit margins are expanding, tech stocks rise. When tech profit margins are squeezing, tech stocks fall. Tech profit margins have been falling for the past 
uh, 12 to 16 months. Tech stocks have been falling for the past 12 to 16 months. I think all of these layoffs, I mean, I think something like 3% or 4% of the entire industry has been laid off now. With all of these layoffs, that is a lot of expenditures that are going to be coming out of the system for these companies. And I don't think they were revenue significant revenue generating expenses. So I think these companies are removing expenses without removing revenue momentum. And the economy is remaining pretty resilient. So the revenue momentum should sustain. Net net, tech companies, I believe, are going to benefit from continued and sustained healthy revenue growth in 2023 with lower expense bases, meaning bigger profit margins and bigger earnings. You need upside earnings surprises out of the tech sector as a result of the layoffs you've seen announced over the past three to six months. So I, I, I hate layoffs. I hate hearing about them. I hate reading about them. And I feel very sad every time I see Spotify, Shopify, uh, Meta, Google, um, all those things. And I read the stories about how some people over at Google were fired and some people at Twitter were fired. And it's like, that's, that's just, you know, some of those stories are pretty messed up if true. So I, that's terrible. But in terms of the investment implications of the layoffs, they are a positive for the stock price, for these stock prices, because they represent necessary cost reductions to re-expand profit margins and generate bigger earnings over the next 12 to 24 months. So I actually think these, and you, you have seen it, you go and follow the history. Anytime a company announces layoffs, especially in the tech sector, the stock soars. Wayfair announced layoff, layoffs, the stock soared. Spotify announced layoffs, the stock soared. Shopify announced layoffs, the stock soared. Alphabet announced layoffs, the stock soared. When did Meta stock, you know, Meta's stock turned around from 90 to like 130, 140. That all started when Meta announced layoffs. And Wall Street was like, Zuckerberg finally gets it. He can't just spend like a drunken sailor. So historically, and we've seen it in the past two months, anytime a major tech company has announced layoffs, the stock price is soaring. I don't think that's a mistake. I think it's Wall Street saying, okay, it's about time we, we right-size the expenses. Let, let's grow reasonably and rationally now, and, and let's look to the future. So I think these layoffs are actually a contrarian bullish indicator for the industry, and they're yet another reason why I am especially bullish on tech stocks for their next 12 months. Well, one place that may need to start doing some layoffs soon is TikTok. Uh, the ban of the app continues. Now, college universities are jumping on board, uh, banning TikTok from their Wi-Fi networks. And you've said that these bans are going to continue. You've also said that they are bullish for social stocks like Snap. Are you doubling down on that thesis with every new major TikTok ban? Yeah, I mean, entirely, because I think the university bans matter a lot more than the government bans. I mean, okay, so you can't access TikTok and government-issued devices. Well, how many, you know, 20 to 30-year-olds, that's actually, you know, TikTok is all the way down probably to 12. So how many 12 to 30-year-olds are, are working for the government? I mean, not, not, not a lot. You know, it's not a... I wouldn't say the majority of TikTok users are government employees, but the majority of TikTok users, or at least an impetus for the influence of TikTok, comes from college campuses. That college kids set trends, and when college kids are all on TikTok and doing cool things and posting funny videos, that permeates throughout society, and all of a sudden, you know, the post-college crowd starts using it. The pre-college crowd starts using it. So I think trends kind of permeate from, from the college and high school crowds. And if colleges are banning access to TikTok on their Wi-Fi, so it's not just these universities are banning it from their devices, like the devices issued by the university. No, you can't access TikTok 
through school Wi-Fi. Some like University of Texas, Texas A&M, uh, schools in Florida, Alabama, Iowa. You can't access TikTok through the Wi-Fi. That mean that that makes. It makes it much more difficult to access TikTok, right? And so I think that will have a negative impact on TikTok user engagement among the 18 to 24-year-old crowd. And that's going to permeate throughout society because I also don't think that those bands are going to stop at universities. You're probably going to get similar bands at high schools and you're probably going to get similar bands I don't know if middle schoolers are on TikTok or on smartphones these days. I don't know. But we're <laughs> probably going to get bands throughout the education system. It's not just going to start and end at the university. Mm-hmm. It's going to start at the university and permeate probably throughout all of uh, all education levels. And so I, I think in, in by the summer, we're looking at a situation where it's going to be pretty hard for somebody ages 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, maybe 23, 24, to access TikTok during regular school waking operational hours. Of course, they can access it at home, but if I'm a parent and my kid's going to a high school and the high school just banned TikTok from the Wi-Fi system, maybe I didn't know much about the app before, but I'm like, eh, maybe, maybe we're not gonna use that app on our phones. So then there's a damage, a reputation hit, right? So I think that this is the beginning of the end for TikTok. We've talked about it before. People have said, no, you know, a government device lockdown, that's not going to end TikTok. TikTok's too ingrained, too popular. But I think that was just the first domino to fall in a series of dominoes that will ultimately erode the popularity and usage of TikTok over the next 12 months. And that usage is not going to just all of a sudden go back out into the real world. I would love that. It'd be really awesome if all of a sudden kids stopped recording themselves doing funny dance videos and instead went out and went to the beach and hung out and stuff. But that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is they're going to stop making funny dance videos and they're going to make silly filters and send those off on Snapchat. So, and they're going to make those funny dance videos on Instagram reels. So I think that what's going to happen, TikTok engagement usage will decrease over the next 12 months. Snapchat usage engagement will increase over the next 12 months. Instagram usage engagement will increase over the next 12 months. I don't think Twitter gets a big benefit. I don't think Pinterest gets a big benefit. I don't think core Facebook gets a big benefit. I think it's going to be Snapchat and Instagram. And that as a result, Snap's user growth is going to be better than expected this year. Facebook's user growth, uh, Meta's user growth is going to be better than expected this year. And once the economy restabilizes and ad budget starts to improve, ad dollars chase eyeballs. So a lot of ad dollars will then flow into those platforms away from TikTok. And you're going to see big revenue surprises out of Snap and Meta over the next 12 months. So I think Snap and Meta stock are very attractively positioned over the next 12 months for what will be a TikTok ban related engagement tailwind. Um, so that's where I stand on it. Um, I, I, out of interest, Aaron, do you still use TikTok? Just wondering. I do. Uh, not as fre- definitely not as frequently as I used to, but it's still a part of the daily just scroll through. But definitely not as much as I used to. Yeah, see, I used to be a TikTok power user. I was a power consumer of TikTok, and for various reasons, I, not related to the bands. I don't really care about the bands personally, but um, not. I just haven't become a, a big user of it anymore. Uh, my wife was a power TikTok consumer. She's not a huge user of it anymore. It just it just feels like even without these bands, TikTok got so hot it was just unsustainable. Mm. And you know, trends that are that hot never last that long. You want to look for trends that are kind of like this, slow and steady. That's what Facebook was, right? Facebook had this slow and steady growth, and it's still around. So you want to find slow and steady growth. TikTok was so parabolic, so hot, so fast, so quick. 
and it almost felt forced and rushed that now that it's coming under all this scrutiny, it, it just feels like the trend is definitely over the hump and on the other side and on decline. And I think, again, that's going to be a boost for, for Snap and, and Instagram and um, yeah, not really Pinterest or Twitter, but definitely Snap and Instagram. We've gone through all the social apps, did a little analysis to see how much overlap there is between users. There's a lot of overlap between Snap and TikTok users, a lot of overlap between Instagram and TikTok. But when it comes to Twitter and TikTok, when it comes to Pinterest and TikTok, uh, core Facebook and TikTok, uh, they overlap to much, much smaller. And therefore, I don't think they get as much of an engagement boost from, from these bands. So while you see Snap and Instagram in the next 12 months benefiting from these from the TikTok bans, do you foresee post 12 months from now another app kind of rising to power, similar how TikTok was kind of an evolution of apps like Periscope and Vine? Is right, there I mean, another evolution? To this like, uh, what's uh, Be Real? Have hmm. you downloaded that one and used it? I've, I've, my friends use it. I'm not, I'm not on it though. Yeah, I mean, I. I I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I I think what here I'll I'll give you guys an, an entrepreneurial idea. Um, I'll give if anyone's listening, here's a startup idea. <laughs> I think the next big app is going to be a discovery application mm -hmm. that allows people to um, discover experiences um, in a more filtered, uh, personalized way. I think the era of just ultra digital engagement is kind of cresting. And I don't think the next app is going to be something where it's like, let's all live through our phones still. I don't yeah. think, I think that era is, is a bit over. And I think the next application is going to be something where it's like, okay, I use this quick, fast, easy to find something I want to do in the real world, to find a concert, to find a uh, sporting event, to find a movie that I want to watch, to find a play, you know, a, a dinner spot that I want to eat at, um, a, a recipe I want to cook or I want to try, um, a bar I want to go to, um, a trip I want to go on. I think it's going to be this composite experience discovery platform that leverages AI to personalize experiences, experience suggestions, recommendations to the user of, of that platform. That's what I think the next big application is going to be. And I don't see that in the world right now. I don't think that that's being, um, it's probably being worked on somewhere in some garage. Uh, <laughs> when that arrives, I think it will be a threat to the status quo, the Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Snap, Pinterest, but I don't think that that threat has arrived yet, and therefore it's not really worth uh, putting into the calculations of the valuations of these stocks just yet. But when it does arrive, and I'm watching for it, then then I will integrate that calculation. But right now, the story is all about TikTok cresting and rolling over, and Snap and Meta winning engagement as a result of that. Then the story will change in probably 12 months, 24 months, if a new app comes along. And once that story changes, reassess the numbers, reassess the positions. But for now, I think we got to stay bullish on on the social stocks. And if anybody out there is listening and wants to be an entrepreneur and have a startup, um. Give me a call. Let's let's start that discovery experience <laughs> business right now. All right. Uh, one more one more tech question, uh, and that's about Apple. Uh, it was reported yesterday that Apple intends to significantly increase its production capacity in India over the next few years. Uh, yeah. Most folks didn't make much of the report. Read it. Move on. Uh, but you said in your research note on Monday that this was actually a really big deal for many reasons. Uh, care to elaborate on that? No. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I think it, 2020s will be the era, the decade of India from a globalization perspective. That um, post great financial crisis throughout the 2010s, China was the winner of the globalization movement. Everybody accelerated their globalization efforts. Everybody went to China to tap into its cheap labor and its very uh, abundant supply chains and abundant ability to produce a lot of things for very, 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 very cheap. And China's economy boomed as a result of that. But now I think everybody's reassessing that situation. We, of course, know that globalization has been kind of put under the microscope as a result of COVID-19 lockdown, supply chain disruptions, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that China has been a net loser of this because China has remained locked down for three years while the rest of the world has tried to reopen, and that has caused Chinese supply chains and those reliant on Chinese supply chains to be under pressure. So I think China is struggling from that. Then China is also struggling from the fact that their economy is basically very much handicapped by their COVID policies. And even now they try to reopen, I think there's been so much fear created around the virus in China that it'll take a while for the economy to get back to truly normal. And also the population is a problem. Population find declined for the first time in I don't know how long, 50 years or more in China because birth rates are plunging. And China's population is expected to continue to decline for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So I think that's a real big problem for China. So a lot of companies are looking at the situation and saying, okay, we need to get out of China. Like we can't, we can't stay here. This situation is not good. There's a lot of talk out there that as a result of those conversations, companies are now going to bring it back to the U.S. That's not going to happen. Like, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> it's not going to happen because labor in China was free to $2 an hour and labor in America, Walmart just raised a minimum wage to 14 bucks an hour. So we're not going to migrate from China to America and pay 7x the labor costs. It's just not going to happen. Okay. So what are these companies doing? Well, they're saying, well, where else can we go that has a ton of people, really robust supply chains, abundant supply chains, and really cheap labor? Hmm. Maybe a couple hours south, India. And so, boom, now everyone's going to India. And I think that's going to be Apple's leading the ship. Their 5 to 7% of uh, iPhones are made in India right now. They're trying to get that to 25%. Uh, within the next few years. So Apple is leading that shift from China to India. I think everybody's going to follow suit. India is going to benefit from what I'm calling re-globalization in the 2020s. This is not de-globalization. We are not de-globalizing. We are re-globalizing. We are simply reshifting where our global supply chains should be located. Not in China, not in communist countries, not in Russia. They should be located in India. They should be located maybe in parts of Africa. They should be located in other places of the world that we can trust more readily than China and Russia. And as a result of that, the biggest winner of this is going to be India. The population is booming. They got a young population. They got an ambitious population. They have a lot of technology appetite there. They have a lot of people that will work for cheap to build a lot of great products. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Apple shifting. You're going to see a lot of companies shift to India, China. What China was in the 2010s, what India will be in the 2020s. I think it's a good time to look at investing in the economy of India, looking at investing in Indian stocks, looking at investing in companies related or that have exposure to what will be a massive um, Indian economic boom in the 2020s. That's that's my two cents there. Uh, any 
any Indian companies you want to mention right now that are on your radar? Um, we are, we're really early innings of, of researching all this stuff with the re-globalization, the re-globalization movement, something we kind of just didn't coin, but something we have been thinking about for a while, but we didn't really start doing a deep dive research into it until recently. Hmm. So we're really early innings with our research of what stocks to buy for that. And maybe next week, two weeks, three weeks, we can start talking a little bit more about specific companies. I don't have any for you right now, but I do know that's a place that if I'm invested for the next five to 10 years, I want to have exposure to India because I think that it's going to be boomtown there like it was boomtown in the 2010s in China. And remember, boomtown in the 2010s in China was really fun. You got the birth (laughs) of Alibaba, Tencent, JD. I mean, these were stocks that went up many, many, many multiples over the course of years. They were secular compounders, big time winners. I think you're going to get similar results off in India. So um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking at what the best options are. But right now, I don't have any specific names for you outside of saying look into getting exposure to India right now. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, pivoting away from tech, Luke, uh, I want to quickly revisit the psychedelics industry because that's mm-hmm. a space you were really bullish on for the past several years, but we haven't talked much about it on these podcasts recently. Um, right. Any updates in that space that are worth sharing? Yeah, I mean, the, the drug development stuff there is is happening mostly as planned. Um, we'll get some big uh, FDA results um, or clinical trial results rather here in um, 2023. I think that will move the needle for the industry significantly. Um, but something that I'm kind of noticing is the, and I read a study recently, the, the incidence rate of depression in the United States is rising significantly that depression and drug abuse related to depression are epidemics that Americans are increasingly facing every single day. More and more Americans are facing every single day. And psychedelics is the antidote to that. Psychedelics have massive therapeutic power when it comes to potentially curing depression, alleviating depression, alleviating addiction, uh, substance abuse, these are real struggles that Americans are, are facing right now. And why there's a pushback against trying to unlock the cure for those things, I don't understand. And I think the bigger those issues will become, the less pushback you'll have to psychedelic-inspired treatments like psilocybin, and the more those will become destigmatized, mainstream, and eventually uh, commercialized by companies like Compass Pathways. So I'm very excited about the movement. There's nothing really significant to report in terms of development updates, but I am, it's kind of weird to say, bullish on it because depression is on the rise, but I think a very big problem in the United States is mental health right now and psychedelics i believe they may not be the perfect answer but i think data shows they are a good answer and they're better than what we have so why are we not unleashing the full power of it i think it will be unleashed and i think it's going to be a massive industry in the 2020s and i'm very excited about enthusiastic for the companies at the forefront of that like compass pathways um so yeah not much to say outside of still very bullish on those stocks Okay. Um, Well, of course, these podcasts wouldn't be complete unless we talked about electric vehicles, housing and cryptos. Uh, Let's start with EVs first. Uh, Big news last week uh, with Shell acquiring EV charging from from Volta. Uh, You've talked about the great EV consolidation before. Is it finally happening? And if so, how do we play it? 
Right, yeah. So we talked about the great EV consolidation. I mean, the theory here is that, okay, we're going to go through exactly what went through the uh, invention of the automobile. And that and the automobile was first invented in the late 1800s. Um, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of companies were born trying to make the automobile, trying to make the best automobile, trying to make a great automobile. And that within, you know, 10 years, almost all of them were bankrupt. And 30 years later, only three of them were still around. So um, that was the great automobile consolidation of the early 1900s. And we're going through, you know, history repeats. Looks like we're going through a similar thing right now, the great EV consolidation. Uh, Tesla came out with the Model 3, boom, massive success. Uh, you start to see EVs everywhere. And then hundreds, it seems like, definitely dozens upon dozens, and it seems like hundreds of startups came out of the woodworks trying to capitalize on the EV boom, make the next best electric vehicle, a great electric vehicle. And the fact of the matter is, uh, the fact of the matter is very few of them will be able to do that. Most of them will fail. And we're going to get a massive consolidation in the EV industry and extends, of course, to EV charging as well. So I do believe this EV consolidation is now underway. We've seen a few firms go bankrupt. We've seen a few get acquired. Volta got acquired by Shell. Um, and I think this is going to continue to happen. You're going to get bankruptcies. You're going to get acquisitions. You're going to get this massive consolidation from an industry that has hundreds of players today to an industry that probably only has five to 10 players within five to 10 years. And that's why I think what you need to do right now is there, there's two ways to play it. One, you got to own the consolidators. So the ones that are doing the consolidating, the five or 10 that will make it through to the other side. I think that's probably the safest and best way to play the EV industry. Find the top-notch firms and invest in them. So how do we define top-notch? We got to find a company that has great technology. You got to find a company that has great branding. You got to find a company that has a great management team. I think management teams are pretty much everything in this space right now. You get those three, you probably have a company and you get... Uh, strong balance sheet with good resources. You get those four things and boom, you probably have a company that's that's going to make it to the other side and be one of the consolidators. So that's where you can invest. And that's one way I love to invest in the EV industry. But if you want to get a bit more risky, then one way you can invest is invest in the consolidated. So don't invest in the companies that are going to go bankrupt, but invest in those second tier firms that don't have what it takes to compete with a Tesla or a charge point in the EV charging space, but also have a unique value proposition and their stocks are really beaten down like a Volta because in that company will get acquired and acquisitions happen at premiums. Volta stock, big loser from 10 to 50 cents, but then it got that pop from 50 cents to 90 cents on the acquisition. That's a double almost overnight. So there is some huge or there are some huge winners to be had in what I'm calling the second tier of EV companies that won't make it to the other side by themselves, but still have unique enough value propositions to be takeover targets in this consolidation then there's the third and fourth tier players what is called all third tier players that do not have a unique value proposition and are just going to go bankrupt so that's where i'm looking at you know that's how i kind of view the ev industry tier one you're very solid market leaders great technology great teams great brands tons of resources they're going to consolidate the industry they're going to aggregate a lot of value they're big time winners in the next five to ten years second tier Companies that aren't quite as big, don't have as many resources, don't have as great a management teams, but have some unique value proposition, whether it be great technology or good engineers or good brand equity, whatever it may be, some unique value proposition that is attractive to one of the tier one players. Those companies probably get acquired. I like those stocks for the next 12 months as acquisition targets. Then there's tier three, the shit. These are just the companies that 
try to capitalize on a boom, have no idea what they're doing, running out of cash, burning cash, just incinerators. They're going to zero. No one's acquiring them. There's no lifeboat coming. Stay away from those. Tier one, five to 10 years. Tier two, next 12 months. Tier three, GTFO. Say goodbye forever. So that's how I'm looking at the industry right now. Volta fell into tier two. I think the tier ones you're talking about in the EV charging industry, definitely charge point. In the EV maker industry, I think you're talking about, you know, the Rivians, the Lucids, the Teslas. They, they are powerhouses in the industry. And then tier three, you know, you're looking at Lordstown Motors, you're looking at Arcimoto, you're looking at Electromechanica. I think those companies are just, there's no future there. I think they're, they're duds long-term, they're going to zero. So that's how I see the industry. And I think you got to be smart when investing in it. But if you are smart when investing, I think you can make a lot of money from the tier ones and tier twos. Okay, uh, moving on to housing. You've long said that 2023 will be a massive recovery year for the housing market. Uh, But you've also grown more vocally bullish on that call over the last few weeks. Why? What are you seeing that is making you think that it is time for housing stocks to rebound? Right. It's, it's the data. It's the data again, Aaron. It has nothing to do with sentiment. It's the data. So one thing that you have to do in the stock market, you have to separate opinions from data. Everyone's got an opinion. Opinions don't drive prices. Data drives prices. So forget opinions, drive, or listen to the data. There's a lot of talking heads out there saying the housing market is screwed. It's, you know, home buyers are screwed. It's the end. It's 2008 all over again. Forget all of them. Look at the data. The data says we are in the midst of a turnaround in the housing market. Home builder sentiment increased for the first time in this bear market cycle in December. That's big. Normally, when home builder sentiment increases from the depressed levels that it's at right now, that's the start of a turnaround. Housing starts beat expectations last month. Home sales beat expectations last month. You're seeing mortgage rates drop dramatically. You're seeing mortgage demand increase dramatically. All the people that I'm talking to in the San Diego housing market, November uh, open home, open houses, completely are kind of empty. December got a little bit better. January, they said it's boomtown. January open houses, everybody I'm talking to in the San Diego housing market, January open houses are as busy as they were at the peak of the pandemic uh, housing boom. People are coming back into the market because mortgage rates are collapsing. The reality situation is, well, there's two realities. One, we underbuilt for 12 years. Home starts, housing permits were well below average for the 12 years following the great financial crisis because home buying demand wasn't there and home builders were afraid to take out massive amounts of debt to build a ton of homes they weren't sure there was going to be demand for. They weren't sure they were going to sell at good enough prices to make them a lot of profit and get ROI on their projects. So there was not a lot of building for 12 years. We underbuilt for 12 years. And the pandemic hit. We underbuilt during the pandemic, obviously. So we've underbuilt now for about 15 years. So that's a problem. Supply is low. Then what about demand? Well, the reason they underbuilt, like I said, is because nobody wanted to own a home after the great financial crisis. My whole generation, your whole generation, there's a whole bunch of people ages 22 to 35, 37, 38, 39, 40 that don't own a home because they didn't have the money. They were afraid. They've been living with their parents. They're living in cities. They're just paying rent. But guess what? Now they have money. Now it's time to grow up. Now it's time to own a home, get that white picket fence. They're sitting on the sidelines. They got cash. They got firepower. They're just waiting for mortgage rates to drop. Mortgage rates drop, mortgage demand source. That's why that happened. 
So you have a whole bunch of sideline demand. You have an underbuilt situation, an undersupplied situation. To me, that means housing market is going to rebound in 2023. All we needed was those mortgage rates to come back down, and they are coming back down. I think they will continue to come down. So I think inflation is rolling over quicker than anybody expected, really. So I really like the housing market for 23. I think housing stocks are primed for a big boom. They were crushed in 2023 or 2022, crushed. And like I said, I think the biggest losers of 22 are going to be the biggest winners of 23. We talked about at the top of this call, five Russell 1000 stocks have risen more than 50% year to date already. One of them is Open Door, housing stock. Redfin is also up massively. Rocket Mortgage also up massively. Compass up massively. These beaten down housing technology stocks, they are soaring right now. I think there's a reason for that. I think this is the beginning of a big rebound in the housing market. I get bullish on those types of stocks. I get bullish on home builders. I get bullish on a Zillow. Zillow is, is pumping hard right now. I think Zillow is in the midst of a breakout. So I think those stocks, I think it's a great place to be for 2023. The Fed could throw a wrench in there, but I don't think they will. They don't want to crush the economy. So I think that housing stocks are looking very good for 2023. All right. Um, I want to finish this week's episode with another tip of the hat, Luke. And that's for calling the early 2023 surge in cryptos. You were pretty much on the sidelines for all of 2022 when it came to cryptos. But you weren't saying that the market was going to zero, but you weren't buying either. You were kind of telling us that, hey, this stuff is great long term, but it has to wash out in the short run. So you've been pretty quiet on the whole market for about 12 months now. Um, back in November, I believe you did start to get a little bit more bullish about a crypto boom cycle starting in 2023. Mm -hmm. And you started telling your subscribers in December to get ready for a massive pop in cryptos in 2023 that you say could last for two to three years. One of your big predictions for 2023 actually was the that Bitcoin was going to rise 100% this year. Well, here we are. And despite seemingly everyone besides you saying cryptos were going to keep crashing, Bitcoin has surged to nearly $25,000 in 2023. And certain altcoins like Solana have already doubled this year. So is this the start of this boom cycle that you've been talking about? I, yes, Aaron, I, I believe so. That again, opinions don't drive stock prices. Data does. And while everybody's opinion on cryptos was sham, scam, fraud, SBF, you know, blah, 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 on and on and on, the data said, all right, this is the bottom. This, this is the trowel. Now we're ready to, to boom. Um, for a moment, I just want, because my boom cycle 2023 thesis actually has almost nothing to do with the fundamentals of cryptos or the blockchain. <laughs> um Let's just forget everything about the fundamentals of blockchain for a moment. I don't care if you're a crypto supporter, crypto believer, or a crypto hater. If you think it's a sham, scam, fraud, if you think it's the next internet and the next biggest revolution that will completely change the world, I don't care if you think it's worthless or the most valuable thing since anything. I don't care what your fundamental opinion of uh, is of, of Bitcoin of cryptos. What matters is that cryptos follow a very predictable boom, bust, boom cycle. They boom for two to three years and then they bust for about 12 months and then they boom for two to three years and they bust uh, for about 12 months. And when busts turn into booms, a lot of people make a lot of money. That crypto has proven to be a 
money printing machine, the fastest, biggest money printing machine in financial market history when this bust cycle turns into a boom cycle. It's happened three times before. Every time a bust turns into a boom, Bitcoin soars thousands of percent, crypto soar thousands of percent, and people that saw it coming make a lot of money. They turn thousands into millions. That's what matters. I don't care what your fundamental opinion is. My job is to help you make money in cryptos. And if you want to make money in cryptos, I'm telling you, there is a pattern that Bitcoin follows, that cryptos follow, and all of our kind of check boxes for when the next boom cycle is going to start got checked in late 2022, got checked in December of 2022, which is why we were saying boom cycle is coming, boom cycle is coming, boom cycle is coming. So what check boxes am I talking about? Okay, well, check box one. During crypto winters, Bitcoin almost always falls about 80%. From peak to trough in December 2022, we were down about 77%. That's 80%. So check box one. During crypto winters, Bitcoin falls 80% and bottoms 80% below its previous highs. We fell about 80%. Fell 80% below the previous highs. That's check number one. Check number two. Crypto winners tend to last about 50 to 60 weeks. That is Bitcoin from its peak to its trough during crypto winters tends to fall for about 50 to 60 weeks. 50 to 60 week stretch. Our peak to trough decline was 58 weeks, right in that range, right in that sweet spot. The timing lines up perfectly. Checkbox number two. Checkbox number three, okay, money supply. The Fed, when M2 money growth is positive year over year and increasing, Bitcoin prices tend to rise as well. The correlation is very, 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 very strong. We check that box off. M2 money supply, it's as low as it's ever been, money supply growth year over year, and it's cyclical. So for as low as it's ever been in the cyclical, that means it's going to turn higher. As it turns higher in 23, crypto prices should follow suit. So that's the third checkbox that happens. Fourth checkbox, Bitcoin always tends to bottom in a crypto winter about 12 to 16 months before a halving event. Next halving is April 2024, estimated. We're 15 months before that. So we're in that 12 to 16 month before having window that historically coincides with crypto bottoms. Checkbox number four, right? So you kind of add all these up and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. The technical patterns here are so, 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 so clear. All the stars have aligned outside of opinion, but opinion doesn't matter. All the stars have aligned from a data perspective showing me this is the bottom. 16.5 was the bottom. Now we boom. How much do we boom? Well, in the 12 months before a uh, halving cycle, when we're going to do a new boom cycle, um, cryptos tend to retake about 38% to 50% of the previous winter's losses. So if we repeat that, then Bitcoin goes, goes to around 40K this year. I think that's what we do. I think Bitcoin's sitting around 23 right now. I think it goes to 40K this year. So I think we boom. And then what happens in the, uh, the year of the halving? You go to new highs. So I think we go to 40 this year. Then I think we go up to 80 or 100 in 2024. So I think this is the start of a pretty big crypto boom cycle. I'm getting pretty bullish on cryptos. I think it's time to buy altcoins. To your point, so Bitcoin is up, I think, like 30, 40% year to date. Solana is up 100, more than 100%. 
there are, I believe, like seven or eight tokens in the top 100 that are up more than 100% year to date. When Bitcoin rises, all coins rise a whole lot more. They're high beta plays on BTC. So if I think a BTC boom cycle is coming, a crypto boom cycle is coming, a BTC is going to rise 100%, 200%, 300%, that means certain alts will probably rise 1,000% or more. So I think it's time to get pretty... Not pretty aggressive, but if you've been waiting to buy the dip in cryptos, now well, the time to buy it was in December 2022, <laughs> but now is still a good time, I believe, to start taking bites at you know Solana, Cardano, taking taking shots on on goal for various altcoins. I think that that will pay off in a 12 to 24 month window because I think we are entering a new crypto boom cycle and that crypto prices are going to go higher from here, materially higher over the next 12 to 24 months. All right. Uh, well, that covers all our topics, uh, but we do have some fan questions. Uh, starting with Tell7, uh, what's your take on Enersys, ESS Tech, and EOS Energy? All are involved in the energy storage sector. Any of these stand out from the crowd? Yeah, I like what ESS is doing with their iron flow. Um, I think EOS is interesting, too. Um, Enersys, I don't know much about right now. Um, the problem for me with those is that they're all working on technology that is very promising in the energy storage space, but is not totally proven to be scalable or work at scale. And therefore, there's a lot of execution risk with that. I'd be fine with taking that execution risk if Fluence weren't on fire sale and STEM weren't on flyer, fire sale. But those companies are on fire sale and they're working with proven lithium ion battery energy storage technology that is scaling very nicely right now with rapid deployments right now. So why would I take the execution risk to bet on some of those smaller plays hmm. with higher risk levels uh, when I could just roll the dice on on fluence and stem for a lot less risk, but still massive upside potential rewards. Speaking of fluence, I mean, fluence has been soaring like a rocket ship recently. I remember not too long ago, back in like May, June, that was like an $8 stock. Yesterday, it pushed up above 25. That stock is rip roaring higher. It's in the technical breakout stage two, clearly uh, breakout channel right now. It's flying higher. I think there, there's gap runway there to 30 in the short term. So I really like fluence. I don't see the need to go out to EOS and, and ESS and all those companies just quite yet i think there's going to be a time and place to buy them but i think right now you ride fluence hard and that and that that's your energy storage play and once those vanadium technologies or iron flow technologies start to really get proven and show they're scalable then we can take a bet on on those other companies but for now stick with the lithium ion battery energy storage leaders stick with fluence and and see how high that one can go i think it can go a lot higher than where it is today uh, our next question from Luis Matarazzo. How do you feel about investing in Bitcoin miners like Hive or Mara? Yeah, so the Bitcoin mining ETF is already up 100% year to date. Uh, that ETF's already doubled in, in three weeks. So <laughs> clearly, I think you got to look at Bitcoin miners as you look at all coins. Mm -hmm. High risk, high beta plays on Bitcoin. So if you are getting speculatively bullish on Bitcoin, which I am, then it's probably a good time to put a little bit of money into the Bitcoin miners. A little bit. I'm, these are not things you bet the farm on. These are not things you bet your lunch money on. These are things you 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 mess around with play money. Um, but I think you know if you're looking to where you're going to put your play money in 2023, looking for huge upside return, all to make a lot of sense. Bitcoin miners make a lot of sense. Look at the price action. Bitcoin's up 30%. Bitcoin miners are up 100%. 
all coins are up 100%. If Bitcoin pulls off another 30, 50, 60% rally, those things probably go 100%, 200% more. So I think you, yeah, if you got some play money and you want to take some risk on bets, and I think going out to the, the Bitcoin miners, going out to all coins makes, makes a ton of sense. So I would look at Bitcoin miners in the same way I look at all coins. All right. Uh, well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors as always. Do you have any last words before we wrap today, Luke? Um, I know that it's kind of scary. The market's kind of scary right now. There's a lot of negative sentiment out there. But again, just remember the quote that bull markets are born on pessimism and they die on euphoria. And we have pessimism right now. So it, it's historically consistent with the type of environment in which a bull market is born. And the biggest and fastest returns in the stock market are made when bear markets turn into bull markets. Most recently, 2020, right? It was, it was the people who bought the dip in March 2020, continue to buy it in April, May, and June 2020 that made a ton of money into the end of the year and into 2021. Like th there were huge returns made from those March lows to the late 21 highs, huge amounts of money made. Bear market and bull market turnarounds meant fortunes for people. Early 2009, there were huge returns made from March 09 into 2010, 2011. Uh, the end of the dot-com crash, there were huge returns made from late 02 into 03, 04, 05. Uh, going back to the early 90s, there were huge returns made when you bought the dividend. Huge returns made when you made it, uh, bought the dip after Black, uh, Black Friday. Um, that there are... Black Monday, sorry, Black Friday shopping. Um, there are... <laughs> The, the best time to invest in the stock market, and maybe the riskiest time too, is when bear markets turn into bull markets. But risk and reward are correlated. So you have to ask yourself, what type of investor are you? Mm -hmm. Are you the type of investor who wants to sit and wait for this coast to be clear, take a little bit of risk and make a little bit of reward, then sit and wait for the coast to be clear? But if you're the type of investor that you know wants to make a bit more, is willing to put a bit more risk on the table for the potential of higher returns – then now is a pretty good time to start taking some, some shots in the market, some big shots in the market. Um, and you're seeing a lot of money do that right now. I mean, look at the massive rallies you've had in stocks over the past few few days and weeks. There's clearly some big traders out there placing some big bets on the tech rebound. I think those bets will pay off. But again, there is always risk in the market, always risk. And risk and reward are tightly correlated. So if you're the type of investor that doesn't want to take risk, then don't take risk. Just sit and wait for the coast to be clear. You're going to be fine if you invest in the stock market long term. But if you want to make a lot of money in the market, you're looking for those stocks and go 100%, 200%, 300% in 12 months. You know, Now is the time you're going to find those stocks with a higher opportunity of success, chance of success than at any other point, um, barring a, a bear market turnaround. So that's, that's where I am. That's how I feel. I'm really excited about the next 12 months. We're taking shots. And I think people who, who have the appetite for risk should be taking shots as well right now. Great. Uh, well, again, I'm excited for the next 12 months, too. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and always to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Uh, as always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye, all.